0: If you have your Bibles this morning, uh, let me encourage you to turn to a couple of places in way of preparation. The first of those is Hebrews chapter 12. Find something to mark there. I found myself, we spent several weeks, well three weeks I guess is week four in worship. and I keep going back to Hebrews, reading it again and again. It's just so helpful as we consider worship. After you get Hebrews 12, run all the way to Exodus chapter 15. I want you to notice an instant there of worship. Exodus chapter 15. And then lastly, where we'll be this morning as I read, is in Nehemiah chapter 8. It is just this side of the book of Psalms. Nehemiah, Job... Then you come to Psalms, so it's right there. Nehemiah chapter 8. This is one of my favorite places in the Old Testament. And as we read it this morning, I want you to see the connection between worship and the Word of God. I long for the day, and it may not be until we get to heaven, where we respond to the Word of God like the congregation does in Nehemiah chapter 8. So if you found your way there, please stand with me. And I will read, and then we will worship God for His Word. Nehemiah chapter 8, I'm going to begin in verse 1, and then read down through verse 12. And all the people gathered as one man at the square, which is in front of the water gate. And they asked Ezra the scribe, to bring the book of the law of Moses, which the Lord had given to Israel. Then Ezra the priest brought the law before the assembly of men, women, and all who could listen with understanding on the first day of the seventh month. He read from it before the square, which is in front of the water gate, from early morning until midday, again in the presence of men and women and those who could understand and all the people were attentive to the book of the law. Ezra the scribe stood at a wooden podium which they had made for the purpose, and beside him stood a number of men on his left hand. Verse 5, Ezra opened the book in the sight of all the people, for he was standing above all the people, and when he opened it, all the people stood up. Then Ezra blessed the Lord, the great God, and all the people answered, Amen, Amen, while lifting up their hands. Then they bowed low and worshipped the Lord with their faces to the ground. Also a number of men, the Levites, explained the law to the people while the people remained in their place. They read from the book, from the law of God, translating to give the sense So that they understood the reading. Verse 9, Then Nehemiah, who is the governor, and Ezra the priest and scribe, and the Levites, who taught the people, said to all the people, This day is holy to the Lord your God. Do not mourn or weep. For all the people were weeping when they heard the words of the law. Then he said to them, Go, eat of the fat, drink of the sweet, and send portions to him who has nothing prepared. For this day is holy to our Lord. Do not be grieved, for the joy of the Lord is your strength. So the Levites calmed all the people, saying, Be still, for the day is holy. Do not be grieved. All the people went away to eat, to drink, and to send portions, and to celebrate a great festival, because... They understood the words which had been made known to them. Let me begin by um, reminding you what we're talking about. We're talking about corporate worship. And I think this will be the last sermon uh, in this series. Uh, I said, unless there's questions that come back. And Sarah did put a box out front. Uh, she listened last week while she was away. Sometimes I don't tell her. She just has to catch up on it herself. There is a box out there, and so if you do have any questions, please do that. I mean, even the most of random questions about worship would be appreciated. It will cause me to think more. But I'm not going to get finished. I know that. Uh, it's a subject that I've realized that you can't find the end of. It's just something that we're going to continually learn about and grow about over the years. And But that's the way of the Christian life. The moment we stop changing and becoming more like Christ is not a good moment to be in. And so hopefully we'll continue to learn and understand more about worship until we get to heaven and then it will be absolutely perfected in every way and we'll finally understand it to its fullest in the presence of the Lord. This morning I wanted to just talk about uh, what worship is and then go on to talk about the role of the Word of God in worship. But I want to begin with this thought and say this about worship. Worship is very simple and I think the Lord designed it that way. I think he didn't want his people to become distracted by so many things around us and so many things that we're exposed to in the world and even our own spirits that get tempted to go in different directions. And so I think he designed it to be simple and he wanted to keep it simple. And when you think about worship, it's just when we simply gather to express our thanksgiving and praise to the Lord, our love for the Lord, our dependence on the Lord, and encourage each other in the Lord. And we simply do that through prayer, we do that through song, we do that through preaching, and we do that through coming to the table, which, Lord willing, we will do together in just a couple of weeks. But when you study the the first century church, and I'm not trying to romanticize that church, that's pretty much everything that we can find in the text that they did, save one other thing, and they usually ate a meal together. And Lord willing we'll do that together as well soon but that pretty much describes the whole of the worship service they they prayed they sang they sat under the word which came to them in a different way but most of the time it was an explanation of the Old Testament in light of the New Covenant but they often it looks seems as though in the text they came to the table every single week that they gathered on the Lord's day So worship is simple and we need to strive to keep it simple But at the same time, it's not just simple, it's also holy. In fact, I thought about this when I was preparing this sermon. It dawned on me yesterday. I could preach a thousand sermons, and until our hearts have changed, until the heart of the church has changed, it doesn't really do anything. Nothing really changes because change has to first take place within our hearts. And so I'm convinced that the only thing the church needs today is a fresh vision or a a realization of the holiness of God. And if we could gain that perspective and be overwhelmed with holiness, I wouldn't have to say anything. Everything would automatically fix itself if we would be reminded of the holiness and the purity of the God that we do worship. That was certainly on the minds of several of the psalm writers and other places that you find throughout the Old Testament and the New Testament. I want to read a particular psalm to you, though. You don't have to turn there. I'll be reading from a number of psalms this morning. But the writer says in Psalm 99, he says, The Lord reigns. Let the peoples tremble. He is enthroned above the cherubim. Let the earth shake. The Lord is great in Zion. He is exalted above all peoples. Let them praise your great and awesome name. Holy is He. And then he goes on. Exalt the Lord our God. Worship at His footstool. Holy is He. I think that's the perspective we need to regain, really, before we do any changes. But what good is, what good is just changing things if our heart doesn't grasp the reason behind those changes? You know, we used to attend a church many, many, many years ago. And service always began with this one particular man who would take the pulpit and tell a joke. And he's just one of those guys that can tell the most fascinating stories and jokes. But that's not something that you begin the worship of a holy God with. And they would go on five, ten minutes, and they were elaborate stories. And I'm telling you, you would try best you could not to laugh, but you would wind up laughing. The guy was just funny. But when you consider that we have gathered to worship a holy God, and I really appreciate how we started the last few services in repentance, you know, telling jokes is not the way to begin a service. Lightening the mood is not the way to come before a holy God. In fact, when you do a study of the word glory, this comes to mind. It it literally means weightiness. And when we come into the presence of God to worship Him, we should feel the weight of that. And we should come humbly and repentantly. And then joyfully as we realize what He has done for us through the Lord Jesus. And the fact that we can even come before Him and worship Him. There's something that the writer of Hebrews said that I I want us to look at this morning. So turn with me to Hebrews chapter 12 and I want to read a few verses to you. And hopefully uh, these verses will help us gain a perspective of the holiness of God this morning. Because uh, according to the text, there are those here in worship this morning that we don't even realize that they are here. In fact, I was listening to an old sermon from R.C. Sproul this week, and he had mentioned this passage, and if I had known it, I had forgotten it. Not the passage itself, but the truth that it communicates to us. Notice with me in Hebrews chapter 12, beginning in verse 18. The writer says, For you have not come to a mountain that can be touched, into to a blazing fire, and to darkness, and gloom, and whirlwind, and to the blast of a trumpet, and the sound of words, which was such that those who heard begged that no further word be spoken to them. For they could not even bear the command, if even a beast or an animal touches the mountain, it will be stoned. And so terrible was the sight that Moses said, I am full of fear and trembling. Now what is he talking about? He's talking about the first time that the Lord came down and met with his people on Mount Sinai after bringing them out of Egypt. And Moses is trying to give us a perspective of what that was like to come into the presence of God. And and Moses himself said, I was just trembling. I was just shaking. And the people were begging that God not speak to them because they thought if they heard anything else from God, they would be consumed by the fire of God. And so Moses goes up on the mountain in this fear and trembling to meet personally with the Lord. But the writer of Hebrews wants us to understand the difference between the Old Covenant and the New Covenant. He's like, it's not like that anymore when we come into the presence of God. And he begins this in verse 22, talking about our experience now. He says, but you have come, in verse 22, to Mount Zion and to the city of the living God, to the heavenly Jerusalem, and notice, and to myriads... Of angels, To the general assembly, that's us, and church of the firstborn who were enrolled in heaven. We were talking about a name for a church last week. There you go. Church of the firstborn. That's the one the writer of Hebrews used. And you've come to God, the judge of all, and to the spirits of the righteous made perfect, and you've come to Jesus, the mediator, who makes all the difference in this, the mediator of a new covenant. So there's a far cry between those two experiences, but God hasn't changed. We need to understand that. And the reason that we don't fear for our very lives is because we have a mediator seated at his right hand. Now, I do realize that he's speaking eschatologically, meaning this will be the great experience of ours as the church. But also, he says, you have come present tense. So it is our experience now. And this is one of those places that we find something absolutely fascinating. We've gathered in the presence of holy angels. I don't talk a lot about that. But occasionally you run across that in the text and it, it should humble our hearts to realize that as we gather for the worship of God, we're not alone. In fact, there's another passage over in First, uh, First Corinthians chapter 11, verse 10, if you want to make a note that speaks about angels being in our presence as we worship the Lord. And my first thought was, I wonder if they've stayed as the church has strayed. Because I know what they're singing. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. That's what they're singing. And I wonder if they've stayed, if they've taken a seat in the back and dropped their head and just thought to themselves, what in the world are these people doing in the worship of a holy God? Hopefully when you begin to think about these things, you'll realize that worship is precious to us. It's a privilege for us. And also it's like the holy moment of your week. Now, certainly, hopefully, all of you gather privately and individually with the Lord and experience sweet communion with the Lord every day. I hope that's your case. But even if you do, this is special what we do now because we set aside this great Lord's Day to gather as the people of God and meet with the presence of God. And we should ask for and seek for a strong sense of His holiness as we gather before Him. Long for that place and then worship Him in light of those things. And not be flippant flipping or, or not be arrogant or not be for show or not be some sort of demonstration or presentation. All of that seems silly when you realize that you've gathered in the presence of a holy God. So yes, worship is simple, but also worship is holy. And so our forms or the things that we do in worship need to be consistent with these things. They need to be consistent with Who we worship. They need to be consistent with the way that He has instructed us to worship Him. They need to be a reflection of all of these truths that we find in the Word of God. But when you speak about the church in general, and I'm not talking about us, but when you speak about the church as a whole, they're not those things. In fact, there's one passage that's been just ringing in my mind even since camp. That I found very interesting and I've had to study it diligently to make sure that I'm keeping it safe within the context of when Paul speaks about it. But let me give you a little bit of background before I read the passage to you. Because Paul is saying this to the church at Corinth. And if you read through all the 1st and 2nd Corinthians, you realize the church there looked a lot more like the world than the church. I mean, they were adopting all sorts of things, but especially their attitude. They were so easily impressed. They wanted the guy who was well-spoken. They wanted the guy who used flowery words. They wanted the intellectual. They wanted to be impressed with all sorts of things. And so Paul makes this statement all the way near the end of 2 Corinthians in chapter 11, verse 3. He says this. He says, I am afraid that as the serpent deceived Eve by his craftiness, your minds will be led astray from the simplicity and purity... Of devotion to Christ I think that fits and I haven't been able to get that passage out of my mind for the last six weeks and that's something that I want us to be diligent as a church to pursue simplicity and devotion when it comes to the worship of God I do not want it to have anything to do with us and we got to be careful because we got a lot of young kids in here And I want them to participate in worship, but that's going to be a temptation for you, Mom and Dad, because you're going to be so proud. And and don't get me wrong, there are moments to be proud. I remember when our kids learned to play the instruments and they would come in there and they'd gather in the den and they had worked on a new song and they wanted us to hear the new song. And so all three of them would be in there playing And sometimes you would even get the special privilege of John singing with them and they could harmonize all three of them. And boy, I mean, tears would just roll down our faces and we were just so happy. Throw them in the car, run down to the grandparents and go, you got to hear this, man. There's a time and a place for that, but it's not here. In fact, if you'll invite me, I'll go with you or sit in your living room so I can hear your kids play instruments and I'll be almost as proud as you are. But you've got to teach them, when they have the opportunity to play here, it's not our time to look at them and boast in them. And that's really hard. This is the time where we boast in God and God alone. And you've got to be diligent to make it about that because your heart does not want it to be about that. We've got to be careful that we're not led astray. And sometimes in the most innocent of ways... We're led astray. We've got to be so careful that everything that we do, it is about the Lord. Y'all feel that awkwardness as well as I do. Somebody, you know, they sing a song or they do a solo or a song's real great. You, You want to do this, right? And your heart's going, oh, this feels so weird. But it ought to feel weird. You ought to check your heart. You ought to be clapping for the glory of God. And we ought to be thankful when God gifts individuals within the body to serve in the place of worship. But you got to be really careful because we can't make it about them. Trust me, the church has made it about themselves for years now. In fact, it, there's actually a term for it. It's called Humanism. And there's far extremes to humanism, but all it's done is taken God out of the center of worship and put man in the center, and everything's about man. Even the preaching is about the needs of man. You want to be happy. You don't want to be depressed. You want a good marriage. You want your best life now. That's all that stuff is. And it begins so innocently. We get led astray, and before long... I don't really know what we're doing on Sunday morning anymore. I just know that we're not worshiping God because it's about us in every way. So worship has to be simple. Worship has to be holy. And I've been wanting to talk about instruments for the last four weeks and I just have never found a proper place to it. But since I'm talking about the simplicity of worship, let's talk about instruments just for a few minutes. Do you use them or do you not use them? And you're like, why would you even say that? Well, All your churches on the eastern side of the the world still don't use them. And in fact, it wasn't until we got on the west side with the church, and it was not until I mentioned this, I think the first week we talked about this, the year 1000, that we began to use musical instruments, which seemed so bizarre to us. But you have to realize that there's still a number of churches that do not, and I'm, I'm not talking about, I won't get into the particular denominations that don't, I would rather talk with them about the gospel, but there are some people who are faithful with the gospel who don't use instruments. There's very faithful Presbyterian churches who don't use instruments now. You're like, why would they not do that? It's because they're absolutely committed to what they've called the regulative principle. If the New Testament doesn't prescribe it, they don't do it. And you're going to really struggle to find an instrument in the New Testament. It's like they fell off the map after the last psalm, and you're like, what happened to the musical instruments? Well, you, you really don't find them. You, there's a couple of mentions in the book of Revelations in heaven about heavenly harps, and you're like, is that metaphor or is that literal? And of course, you heard trumpets, you are like, is that a literal trumpet, you know? And it's a struggle. And so they're like, since it's not mentioned in the New Testament, we're not going to use them. I disagree with them on that subject. I do think they're helpful But they're also very dangerous. I don't know of anything more powerful than music. In fact, Alistair Begg talks about how music is the most powerful influencer of culture. You think about this. You'll find yourself in your car singing a song from the 80s, singing words that you would never say publicly because they're just absolutely immoral. But because the song is so cool... You're just going right along with it. And if it dawns on you, you'll go, what in the world am I doing? What am I saying? Am I even even listening to the words coming out of my mouth? I bet you I could start a line of a particular song from the 80s and probably everybody in here could finish it. But what's sad is I bet I could start a number of Bible verses and the majority of you couldn't finish it. And you're like, why is that? It's because of music. It's so powerful and it's so influential in our lives. And what many have done is they've recognized that power and they've used that power for their own purposes. And music winds up being a a tool of manipulation in the worship of God. And when music has become a tool of manipulation, that's when music needs to stop. Because we need to be in our right mind as we come before God and worship Him. I mentioned this, I think it was the first or second week. This is something that goes on within the church today that is very concerning. The statement that the Spirit so moved that the preacher did not get to preach. Let me say, and I'll show you from the text, that is not the Spirit of God. It's the Spirit of man, but it's not the Spirit of God. Because if there's a powerful music or if there's a favorite song or a very powerful uh, music's played during that song, musical instruments played during that song, and then a really gifted singer and people are brought high emotionally, they automatically equate that with the Spirit of God. But I can promise you if you use the same song and the same musical instruments and I'm the one singing it, they won't be moved to emotion at all. They might be moved out the door, but they're not going to be moved to powerful emotions. And you're like, okay, well, I know the Spirit of God is not going to glory in a man, therefore you need to question whether or not that's the Spirit of God. If I can shut down the Spirit all by myself, by opening my mouth and singing praises to the Lord, I don't think it was the Holy Spirit to begin with. Because He doesn't rely upon a man. I can prove that to you in, in the context of preaching. Remember what Paul says in, in 1 Corinthians chapter 2, talking about his preaching? He said, "...I was with you in weakness and in fear and in much trembling. My message and my preaching were not in persuasive words of wisdom, but they were in demonstration of the Spirit and of power, so that your faith would not rest in the wisdom of men." but on the power of God. And so I think about this passage often when I'm about to walk up here to the pulpit and I thought about it this morning and I prayed about it. I said, Lord, I want to preach in fear and trembling. The problem is I really don't even know what that means. I know I can't trust in my abilities, but it seems as though Paul was intentional about not using persuasive words or flamboyant or powerful speech in order to sway people's emotions. I think that might be what he meant, but nonetheless, do you know what the Corinthians thought of him as he preached? Listen to this. 2 Corinthians chapter 10. For they say about Paul, his letters are weighty, meaning we don't understand them, they're strong, but his personal appearance is unimpressive and his speech is contemptible. Now, hopefully, we can agree that Paul was a spirit filled preacher. I believe I'd argue with that one. I might even die on that hill. But yet when the Corinthians heard him preach, they go, oh, his voice grates on my ears. In other words, I'll tell you this, the majority of the church today wouldn't recognize the work of the Holy Spirit if they smacked him in the back of the head. It takes spiritual maturity to recognize the work of the Spirit And sometimes His work does work in us and our emotions. But I'll tell you, every time that the Spirit works, He brings us into repentance, obedience, and faith, and makes us more like Christ. That's the committed work of the Holy Spirit. I remember again in another church several years ago, you could look on the bulletin, and if it was a particular song... Some by this particular individual, the preacher would not get to preach. The young lady had just a powerful voice. I'm telling you. You would feel it to the tip of your toes. And sure enough, about halfway through the song, the altars would fill up and you'd stay that way for an hour. And he would never crack the word of God, except I knew the person speaking. And I knew their personal struggle with sin and they were not winning that battle. And yet somehow they picked up the microphone and the altars filled up, and I thought, man, something's just not okay here. And I began to realize that it's music doing this, it's not the spirit doing this. And so when we bring into the arena of musical instruments, you you gotta be intentionally careful. They're servants. They're not leaders. They're supposed to help us focus on God. I started to get Hillary to do this. I finally decided it was going to be a little too weird for her and probably I would regret it later, but I was going to get her to sing with a flashlight. With the lights out. And somewhere along that song, take that flashlight, which was going to represent a musical instrument, and simply shine it over the corner where I was going to write on a marker board, God. And let you see the purpose of a musical instrument is to just point us to Him. And then I thought, I might even get crazy and I'll give all the kids in the room flashlights. And just tell them to turn them on and just run around while we're singing. And then hopefully you would immediately see how musical instruments can take over, take control, and we no longer see God. It's just all about the instruments. The biggest danger with music in worship is what is referred to as ecstasy, which actually comes from a Greek word. Ek means out of, and the other part of that word means oneself. Literally meaning you're out of your mind. And that's what happens when the music carries you too far emotionally. You move out of your mind. Let me read the words that describe this state. Ecstasy is a subjective experience of being totally consumed with another object to the point where consciousness is affected. From a psychological psychological perspective, ecstasy is a loss of self-control and sometimes a temporary loss of consciousness, which is often associated with religious mysticism. It can be deliberately induced using religious or creative activities, meditation, music, dancing, breathing exercises, so on and so forth. The particular technique that an individual uses to induce this state is often associated with the individual's particular religious and cultural traditions. And you see that going on in the charismatic church. You see that sometimes going on in the primitive Baptist church. Things are brought to a height emotionally and the people lose themselves. And of course, you know the problem with that. The fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, gentleness, faithfulness, self-control. That's the work of the Spirit. The Spirit doesn't lead us to a place where we've lost control. The Spirit leads us to a place where we've gained control of our lives morally. We don't run around here out of our minds. This is where we renew ourselves in the Spirit of God and gain control of ourselves. You know, you often hear, and i probably said it myself, preachers use this. It's the excuse that they use for going too long in the sermon. Here's my excuse. I do it. I'm the reason we go too long. But there's actually a passage that speaks to that. 1 Corinthians 14, verse 32, it says this, The spirits of the prophets are subject to the control of the prophets. I love that passage. And I can't wait for the day that I get to use that passage. There's an old man, he's gone on to be with the Lord that I used to listen to all the time, teach Sunday school. I absolutely loved Warren Wearsby. And he was speaking at a conference one time. And if you, He's still on the radio if you can find him. One of the best Sunday school teachers I've ever heard. And he's speaking at a conference one time and the guy before him got over into him 30 minutes and he burned up 30 minutes of his time. So Warren went to the pulpit with just like 30 minutes to go and he's supposed to have an hour. And the preacher walked past him and said, you know, I'm sorry, man, the spirit just got away with me today. And Wiersbe said, no, the spirits of the prophets are subject to the control of the prophets. You got away with yourself. And he walked to the pulpit and he started to speak. That's my kind of guy. You see, the Holy Spirit gives us control. And so we're supposed to worship God in a way that honors the Lord, and that is not out of control. And so the purpose of musical instruments, again, I take you back to this, is for the sake of serving. Not for the sake of taking control of anything, especially our own spirits. We have to be very careful. So again, worship, simple, holy, in all of its parts. The last thing I want to talk about, and it will be some time in here, because I want to talk about the role of the Word in worship. Now certainly we understand the role of the Word of God in preaching. Preaching is to be solely guided by the Word of God. And I know I've been hammering worship for the last several weeks, but listen, I am far more discouraged by the pulpit than I am the choir loft. I mean, if I get sent somewhere and just get to go on and on about anything that I want, I'm going to be going on and on about the pulpit. In fact, all the problems that we see in worship today are a direct result of a lack of leadership from the pulpit. He should have stopped some of those things. He should have redirected some of those things. But when you think about preaching, right, in one sense, and I say this with quotation marks, preaching's not difficult. And I mean that in this sense. I'm not preaching my word. I didn't have to find something. I didn't have to make something up. I didn't have to scour the bottom of the ocean or go off in some forest and contemplate why I have a navel or anything like that. I simply had to open up the book that God wrote and I go into the text and yes, I'm led by the spirit where we go, but I'm just explaining what he said. That's what I read this morning. Nehemiah literally read the Word of God from breakfast until lunch and the people listened attentively and then the Levites went out among the crowd and began to explain what was read to them. And once they understood it, they began to cry. It's really not that difficult, right? But we also have to understand that the Word of God plays the primary role in worship as well. Which means worship is not that difficult either. Because the object of worship is God, and so we should be thoroughly guided by the word of God and how He's instructed us to praise Him. Now this is the very first thing that God began to deal with me at camp, because I just began to study the psalms because I knew it to be the most significant part of the Bible where worship was express, ex, where worship was expressed to God. And I saw three things that automatically, or just immediately rather, just jumped out at me. And I realized there's really just three categories in which, or, or three categories for which we worship God. And the first of those, and these are the three things that I want to talk about with the time that we have left, but the first of those, we, we worship God for His character. And if you'll pay attention to this when you read your Bible and note when they're worshiping, you'll see these three things. And one of the primary things is the character of God. The second thing that you'll find in your Bible that they worship the Lord for is the works of God. And then the third thing that you'll find in your Bible that will worship God is the Word of God. And so since that time, I've been reading and reading through the text, and everything falls into one of those three categories, which ought to tell us something. If we're singing a song that we're not glorifying God either for who He is, what He's done, or what He said, that should be off the table. Because it doesn't fit in how we have been told to worship the Lord. You go to Psalms 145. Let me show you just a few of these in the text. In fact, Psalms 145, you you find more than one. That's what makes it so good. Psalm 145, notice verse 8. Listen to what David says. The Lord is gracious and merciful, slow to anger and great in loving kindness. Now that's pretty easy to see that he's worshiping God for the attributes of God or the character of God. But does that sound familiar? You better believe it does. When did that take place? That's when the Lord revealed Himself to Moses. David wasn't there. But David has read about when this took place. David has read about what God said to Moses. And David's simply repeating God's Word back to God. He's using the Word of God to praise God and he's praising God for who God is. And so he's decided the best way to do that is not to fashion this God or discern this God from my heart, but to understand God and who He is and what He said in His Word. And so He's simply repeating what God said, right? The Lord is gracious and merciful, slow to anger, great in loving kindness. That's who you are and that's who I'm going to worship you for. Revelations is absolutely filled with these things. You don't have to turn there, but listen to some of the songs in Revelation. Revelation 4.8 The four living creatures, each one of them having six wings, Are full of eyes, around and within, and day and night they do not cease to say, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God, the Almighty, who was, who is, and who is to come. Or this one in Revelation 5. Then I looked and I heard the voice of many angels around the throne, and the living creatures, and the elders, and the number of them were myriads of myriads and thousands of thousands, saying with a loud voice, Worthy is the Lamb that was slain. To receive power and riches and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. There's so much worship in this Bible about who God is. And let me tell you, one of the, one of the reasons that I came to understand, even in a better way this week, you really need to know God for who He is. I preached the funeral this week. of a child who never took his first breath. Came to the moment of birth, mom couldn't deliver, nothing wrong whatsoever with the child and the child died. And so when I, I get there, I go over to dad and I hug him and he said, I got some questions for you if you don't mind. And he asked me dozens and dozens of questions. They were all very good. First one was, when am I going to get to see my son? Second one, will I know him? And so these were his questions and we were just going through all those. But there were some questions that I could not answer. And I told him, you know, there's going to be more questions that pop up in your mind as you go along and you you suffer through this experience, but you need to understand that the God that you worship Is a God who has all the answers and His character is perfect and good. And so you don't have to worry about the answers to all your questions. Just know that the God who knows them is good in all that He does and you can rest. I mean, there's going to be a lot of times in your life you're going to go through things that you're going to want to know. And at the end of the day, you're not going to know. You're simply not going to understand. And you've got to have somewhere to to fall back on. You've got to have somewhere to rest and all that. Or you'll drive yourself crazy. And I've learned as I've grown older and gone through some things. And in fact, I might be too quick to sit down and not try to discern the answer to my question. But I'm just so willing now to just rest and say, I don't know. I don't know. He does. And I'm super okay with him. I mean, he's awesome. So I'm okay not to know. So, one of the reasons that you sing about the character of God is to strengthen you and give you a foundation for the day that you want to know, but you're not going to know. And then some days you'll come to church just absolutely broken, wanting to know, and you're standing beside a brother or sister who's just singing about how awesome God is, and all of a sudden the Spirit of God begins to encourage you and go, It's okay that I don't know. I'll find out when I get there. But for today, I'm just going to worship Him. Who knows? because I know He is good. So we need to worship God for who He is, but secondly, we need to worship God for what He has done. Notice verses 1-7. through 7. This is equally awesome. Verse 1, I will extol you, my God, O King. I will bless your name forever and ever. Every day I will bless you. I will praise your name forever and ever. Great is the Lord and highly to be praised. His greatness is unsearchable. Now notice he changes. One generation shall praise your works to another and shall declare your mighty acts. On the glorious splendor of your majesty and on your wonderful works I will meditate Men shall speak of the power of your awesome acts, and I will tell of your greatness, they shall eagerly utter the memory of your abundant goodness and will shout joyfully of your righteousness. He's just talking about works in general. He don't even have anything specific in mind. He just says, "Lord, I just want to praise you for all that you've done. It's just absolutely awesome. In fact, he uses the word "meditate," and I believe some translations uses the word "studied," and I like that. I'm just going to study your works. I'm going to meditate on them, I'm going to reflect on them, and I'm going to worship you because of them. Which begs the question, what are the two great works of God that we worship God for? What's the first one? Creation. Now this should break our hearts. One of the primary reasons that God says that we should worship Him, the majority of the church today doesn't even believe. God says, you should worship me because I made the heavens and the earth. And the church goes, well, I'm not even sure I believe that anymore. I can't worship you for that if I don't think you did that. You see how far we've moved away from what God says we should worship Him or the things that we're supposed to worship Him for? Psalms 19, the heavens are telling of the glory of God. Their expanse is declaring the work of His hands. Day after day they pour forth speech, and night after night it reveals knowledge. Creation worships God for creation, but we can't. Really? And I'm thankful for this church because this is one of our favorite songs around here. Oh Lord my God. When I, an awesome wonder, consider all the worlds thy hands have made, I see the stars, I hear the rolling thunder, thy power throughout the universe displayed. Then sings my soul, right? My Savior God to thee. How great thou art! How great thou art! Man, we should never stop singing that song. That's an awesome song. And it fits perfectly in the context of one of the reasons that we ought to worship God. What's the other great work of God? How about our redemption? You don't have to. I think you don't have these right now, but let me read the words of this song to you. We should forever and we will forever praise God for His great redemption. What He has done for us. When I survey the wondrous cross on which the Prince of Glory died. My richest gain I count but loss and pour contempt on all my pride. Forbid it, Lord, that I should boast, save in the death of Christ my God, all the vain things that charm me most, I sacrifice them to His blood. See from His head, His hands, His feet, Sorrow and love flow mingled down. Did e'er such love and sorrow meet, or thorns compose so rich a crown? Were the whole realm of nature mine, that were a present far too small. Love so amazing, so divine, demands my soul, my life, my all. That's a good song. It sings about what the Lord has done for us on Calvary, and we should ever praise the Lord for that work. But lastly, sometimes the works are very personal to us, and we sing about those works. Listen to the psalmist in Psalm 116. I love the Lord because He hears my voice and my supplications. Because He has inclined His ear to me, therefore I shall call upon Him as long as I live. The cords of death encompassed me, the terrors of Sheol came upon me, I found distress and sorrow. Then I called upon the name of the Lord. O Lord, I beseech You, save my life. Gracious is the Lord and righteous. Yes, our God is compassionate. The Lord preserves the simple. I was brought low and He saved me. Return to your rest, O my soul, for the Lord has dealt bountifully with you. That's a good song. That one's personal, right? He's not singing about creation. He's not singing about redemption. He's just singing about what the Lord did for him. I've told you this before, but the young lady in Rwanda, when we got to church, she, she wanted to sing a song that she had written for the Lord. I told you this, a snake had bit her No hospitals there. She could die. The Lord delivered her. So she wrote a song and a dance because in Rwanda, you're going to get both. And she got up there by herself and she danced and she sang and she danced and she sang because she wanted to praise the Lord for delivering her from death. When you begin to think about all the Lord has done in your life, how in the world can you find anything else to do other than sing? And praise Him. Because He has done so much for us and continues to do every day. The last thing, the last category that I found, the reasons that we should praise the Lord is the Word of God. Very first Psalm. This is how the psalmist begins. How blessed is the man who does not walk in the counsel of the wicked, nor stand in the path of sinners, nor sit in the seat of scoffers, but his delight is in the law of the Lord. And on His law, He meditates day and night. The psalmist wanted to begin by worshiping God for His Word. Psalms 19 is one of my favorite. Verse 7 begins with this, The law of the Lord is perfect, restoring the soul. Psalms 33 goes like this, Sing for joy in the Lord, O righteous ones. Praise is becoming to the upright. Give thanks to the Lord with the lyre. Sing praises to Him with a harp of ten strings. Sing to Him a new song. Play skillfully with a shout of joy. Because, do all of that because, the Word of the Lord is upright. I just want to sing praises to you because your Word is faithful and true. And I can trust in it with my life. Therefore, I worship you. What's the longest psalm about? The Word of God. Psalm 119. Nehemiah chapter 8. I told you this morning, that's my favorite. It's my absolute favorite because of the people immediately worship God because of the Word of God. Can you imagine? And sometimes perhaps you've been there. It's a wonderful place to be. The minister just begins to just read. And tears begin to flow down your face. And before He finishes, you're already there in worship. You're just praising God for His Word. Man, as I said earlier, I I just long for that day. I long for the day where I can't finish reading because you can't stop crying. And I'm just reading. That we love the Word of God so much. And before I can finish... Some of you's already fallen down in your face, right where you sit, just confessing your sins because it struck you that particular morning. The Spirit of God used the Word of God just to split you, and you just right here. I gotta. I'm sorry, but I got to deal with this right now. Man, I look forward to the day where we respond in that way. If you have your Bibles, last one I want to go to is Psalm 111, and He mixes all three. You know, I. I I cut them out in neat categories, but you got to realize the psalmist doesn't cut them out in neat categories. He flows from one to the next and back and forth. He's just praising the Lord for all three of those things. But let me read Psalm 111. There's only ten verses, but I think you'll notice. Verse 1, praise the Lord. I will give thanks to the Lord with all my heart. Notice, in the company of the upright and in the assembly, he's gathered for worship. Great are the what works of the Lord. They are studied by all who delight in them. Splendid and majestic is his work. His righteousness endures forever character. He has made his wonders to be remembered Oh, here we go again. The Lord is gracious and compassionate. That's who He is. He has given food to those who fear Him. He will remember His covenant forever. He has made known to His people the power of His works in giving them the heritage of the nation. The works of His hands are truth and justice. All His precepts, the Word of God, are sure. They are upheld forever and ever. They are performed in truth and uprightness. He has sent redemption to His people work. He has ordained His covenant forever. Holy and awesome is His name. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. A good understanding have all those who do His commandments. Word, His praise endures forever. I mean, just one to the next. Because it's all about God. And it's so easy for him to worship God for who he is, for what he's done, for what he said. It doesn't matter. He just wants to praise the Lord. Before I close, I hope this is a question that's in your heart. How am I supposed to respond when worship is done poorly? Because I found myself asking that question while we were at camp. In fact, since then, I've gotten a questionnaire from camp. What did you think of worship? Of course, it had about six things. What did you think of the preaching? What did you think of the facilities? What did you think of the food? What did you think of the games? What did you think of the worship? haven't answered it yet. What do you do? Well, let me give you instruction about preaching. What do you do when preaching is done poorly? Well, if it's just done poorly, look for the nugget. He's going to say something from the Word of God, and it's going to be true and trustworthy. And once he says it, just grab a hold of it and just go off somewhere and just meditate on that one truth and just praise God if you don't hear anything else that's said. But obviously, you need to do more if he says something that's wrong. I hope there's enough men here in this room with enough backbone if I said... For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son that we all get to go to heaven. I pray if I ever said that, there'd be at least a half a dozen of you men stand up and go, oh no, that is not true. You need to change what you said. So there are times, men, and sometimes you women, when what's said from the pulpit is so far beyond the Word of God that you've got to stand up and you've got to Help the congregation realize they've just been lied to. I've been there and I failed to stand. I'll tell you that. It's hard. I thought I was going to have a heart attack because I knew I was supposed to stand. What he said was not true in regard to the gospel. And I failed to stand and I struggled to walk to my truck to leave because I felt like I had disappointed the Lord so greatly. I hope you get used to standing. Okay, that's preaching. What about worship when it's done poorly? That's hard, too. I didn't want to be a turkey and do this and get my kids and leave. I didn't want to do that. So I stayed. And because I stayed, I had the opportunity to instruct them upon, about some things in regard to worship. And it wound up serving a great purpose for us all week long because we learned about worship. And here we are, I'm preaching about worship. And if I'd have done this and left, none of that would have ever happened. So you've got to pray for wisdom, ask for wisdom, and perhaps the Lord will give you the opportunity to have a conversation and go, you know what, since you're talking about worship, let's talk about some of the things that we sang in church today. Because I feel like they were out of place. Turns out, Jesus, take the wheel, doesn't work on Sunday morning. There are songs that you can sing from your car that we should not sing on Sunday morning, and so we have to be wise about that. But nonetheless, every now and then, they're going to sing a song. And I actually had a conversation with another kid who's at camp, wound up at my house this week, and we're eating dinner. And I don't know who brought it up, but he was like, yeah, some of those songs were, I was scratching my head. I was like, I'm glad you noticed. He said, but we always wound up really good because that last, those last couple of songs, they were pretty awesome. I was like, yeah, they were. You just had to hold out because you knew the first three were going to be, what in the world are we doing? And the last three, they're going to be good. And so we held out for our little gold nugget. So sometimes you need to do that. But what you don't need to be is arrogant. What you don't need to be is prideful. What you don't need to be is critical. You know why you don't need to be critical? Because the bride of Christ is singing. And our job is to encourage her and instruct her and not condemn her. You see, the congregation is being led by men. The problem is with men, not the bride. And so we have to be faithful in taking care of the bride of Christ until the day we go home. How do we get back? Oh, getting back is always easy. You always get back through repentance. Always. And I'd ask you to do that in your own heart. I pray that we would have that attitude corporately because like I said, we can do all of our forms right, but if our heart's not right, you know. You know what that's like. It's like wearing a suit on Sunday when you were drunk on Saturday. I mean, really? So it starts in our hearts. And I I ask you to just deal with worship in your own heart. I pray that God would renew your desire to be a part of worship. I pray that you would pray and ask the Lord to make the Lord's day the best day of your week to where you would just be excited to gather with the body and sing praises to our God. But also pray that you would pray that you would do everything to get your heart ready for worship. That you'd just come in here trembling. Wanting the presence of God, but yet trembling. Confessing. And then renewing yourself in the gospel, realizing that Jesus has paid it all. And then you would allow the Spirit of God to move you to joy. Self-controlled joy where you just want to sing praises to God for all the great things He has done. Let's pray.